You're listening to Tender, a podcast that turns the spotlight on what happens after women leave abusive relationships. Once they've fled the pain, the disappointment, the badness of it all. Leaving is tough, but learning to live in the empty, confusing space afterwards, that's something else entirely. In the last episode of Tender, episode one, I did the leaving. In a particularly cinematic way, might I add. I boarded a plane at Heathrow Airport just before Christmas and returned home, much to the surprise and relief of my parents. A friend of mine, Johanna, chopped my ponytail off so that I could equip myself with a new do. A new helmet, really as I stepped blindly into my new, exciting life. What that life entails yet, I'm not too sure. But so far, there's been a lot of foggy late-night slumber parties with one of my best friends, Lockie. The two of us watching inspiring YouTube clips of talent show auditions swiping left and occasionally right on Tinder and gate-crashing parties. Every morning, every evening, ain't we got fun? Not much money. Wait, 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 wait. We need to rewind. This period of parties and sleepovers and shenanigans wasn't my first single-person rodeo. There was a time, about two years into my relationship, where the two of us briefly separated. After a spell of verbal assaults, yelling, anger, and what felt like a relentless period of being the dartboard to his fuck yous and fuck this and get fucked, and other words and phrases I'd really rather not mention, him and I did split up momentarily. It was during this fleeting separation that I met my friend, Giselle. Okay, so I remember when I first met you, we were going to a feminist talk, and we hadn't met before, we were just friends from the internet, and I remember that you were very, you were quite shy. Um, Actually, it's really hard for me now to think of you as you, and you as back then as the same person. You now is definitely so much more sure of yourself and confident that you were then. Giselle stuck around to see me creep back into his grip. It only took a few months and so she came to visit me four months into seeing him again despite the fact that he was in Europe by this stage to discuss our equally dysfunctional relationships. But what I didn't know at the time or perhaps what I refused to consider was that my relationship wasn't just dysfunctional. It was emotionally abusive. this year that a friend was like, you, you really 
like, but that was emotionally abusive, right? And I just, like, I I think when you're in that situation, sometimes you you don't want to call it that because you feel like maybe other people have it worse or maybe you're just being dramatic or something. It's tempting to visualise a rigid image of the perfect female candidate of abuse, an unknowing woman who cannot, for the life of her, see or understand the sort of constraints she is living under, who defends her partner endlessly, who believes she deserves what she gets. But it wasn't always like that, as you can hear. I didn't like the way he spoke to me, the names he called me. In fact, I spoke up about it complaining to friends about his behaviour. But when someone sinks their teeth in the way he did, it's often inevitable that you adapt, that you come to know the slurs and the hatred as normal, as expected even. I do really vividly remember us talking on that day just because um, I wasn't really having those sorts of conversations with anybody else. Okay, enough of that. Fast forward. It is 2016 and Lockie and I are lounging about in the blaring nothingness on a worn-out couch at a Northcote house party, drunkenly scoping the backyard of somebody's crowded share house, on the hunt for nothing in particular. But we're taking it all in. Every last shadow and laugh, every last swig of booze. I close my eyes. I feel safe, untouchable, and I think about something a friend of mine said, which went a little like this. You're at a party. You're on a roof, even. The sun may be setting or rising, but all that matters is that it's there. Do you know who's also there? Every single one of your favourite people. The echo of sunlight drapes itself lavishly over their cheeks, over your cheeks. Can you feel it? You are on top of the world. You are the happiest you've ever been. Now, I'm going to take it one step further. Now, imagine who is there. Imagine who is there with you, with them. Do you feel any differently now? And if you do, if your throat tightens and you feel that familiar tug someplace deep in your rib cage, and you want to cover your face and flick specks of hurt from the grooves of your t-shirt, the ones that nestle deep in your clothes, then it's time to go, darling. It's time to leave. It wasn't being single or the prospect of meeting new people that made my slumber parties and late night soirees with Lockie so enjoyable. It was just that, just what my friend described. Me and one of my favorite people in the whole world lazing and basking in the niceness of it all. The anonymity, how safe it felt to be surrounded by fun-loving strangers, people whose bodies budged and twitched to music and not much else by lights, not sirens, and sound, high-pitched, fun-loving, loud and unapologetic sound, not the hum of anger. Fuck that frequency. You would, like, arrive at my... When, when you arrived at my house being, like, 
15 minutes later of leaving and going to this, like, someone who we barely even knew. <laughs> I don't think we even <laughs> knew them. I think we said hello. <laughs> <laughs> That's Lockie. He's the best. You, you told me some stories and kind of had given me an understanding of how things went down and, and what that period was like in your life. But then it was through us hanging out more and understanding more just the sort of gravity of that and listening to... Um, the tapes that you had of, of the recordings that you had of uh, the things that he said to you was, I think that was a big turning point of sort of really understanding what that was like and, and the sort of things that were happening. When Lockie mentions the tapes, he's referring to a collection of voice memos I had recorded while I was in Europe of my boyfriend saying, pretty atrocious things to me one evening. The only reason I did this was in case I felt wooed or persuaded to go back to him, so that I had something to reference when I couldn't believe my own self in time, my own recollection of events. And when you've had somebody in your ear convincing you that things just aren't the way you think they are, that this is just how relationships work, reassurance, be it in the form of scratchy iPhone recordings, are integral. I needed to be believed, otherwise I felt like I was losing it. My mind, my sense of self. I've never really been in the situation of having a friend talk about that sort of thing, and especially growing up, we never were given the tools to be able to understand that in a way. And Lockie's right. How do we ask the people we love if they're hurting, when we don't even know what abuse is? what it looks like in interpersonal relationships, how it can be both psychological, emotional, financial even, not strictly physical. And when we see our loved ones, the same women who travel 16,000 kilometres to howl some flume song at the top of their lungs on a dance floor, sticky with wine and inhibitions, how do we know when or if the hurt has stopped? How do we know when or if it does? That's part of the reason why I created this podcast. I wanted to show my nuance. I wanted you all to hear the way I laugh. I wanted you all to hear me having the time of my life, even though I knew it wouldn't always be like that. There would be bad moments. But I guess what I'm trying to say or to show is that that's all part of it. In saying that, I did happen to meet somebody. We'll call him Jacob. In a spontaneous turn of events, Jacob and I got to know each other at a party in the inner north. He invited me to see the Ai Weiwei and Andy Warhol exhibition in town that same week. I liked him. He was soft, generous. He liked me too. One afternoon, the two of us strolled down from his home to Bar Uzu a cosy and zany bar on Sydney Road, a stone's throw from where he lived. We sat in the back courtyard, sipping red and telling jokes, and there was something so typical, so stock standard about the entire exchange. His laughter was warm and generous. Jacob knew how to have fun, 
He welcomed me into his eclectic group of friends, and the entire debacle felt as gratified and exciting as some kind of makeshift summer camp I had signed up for. I felt a part of something. Hey, I like you. Thank you for being so kind to me, I messaged him one evening, joyously. With Jacob, I had tiptoed into a new life. After the two of us went to the Ai Weiwei and Andy Warhol exhibition together, I remember seeing the video of Ai Weiwei, proud and inquisitive, wandering through each of his large display cabinets at the NGV, and the way he observed his own work struck a chord with me. He seemed so obviously overjoyed. He hoisted his phone in the air and documented a series of selfies as he stood before his very own projections. I think this is what freedom looks like, <laughs> taking a selfie. <laughs> it then occurred to me that I hadn't done this yet, not with Jacob, not with anybody. I had exhausted my summer back in Melbourne looking outward, taking in the warm air at gatherings and trying to reflect myself leisurely in my surroundings. If Jacob was fun, it meant I was too. If the parties were good, it meant I was too. But without all of that, who was I? And more importantly, did I like that person yet? I don't think so. It was time to spend some time alone. Coming, on set, on set. Hello. But alone is hard when the past calls. And the past sounds like a young man with a voice you know well, wanting to tell you that he misses you, that things just aren't the same and that I'm unique that I'm Madison, you know, and he's friendly today, and so I sit on the floor of my bedroom, and I, I hear his thoughts and his sadness, and I wait, and I think, fuck, this is hard. Thank you for listening to the second episode of Tender. If you're interested in sponsoring this podcast or just reaching out, please do. I can be found at madisongriffiths at live.com.au or on Instagram and Twitter. I really want to thank my wonderful friends, Giselle Nguyen and Lottie Blaskodine, for their generous input. If you're enjoying hearing this journey and you have a bit of leftover coin and want to ensure that it continues, a small donation would go a long way. In case you haven't noticed yet, the producer and writer and storyteller and artwork designer and general podcast hustler is one person, me. Sitting on my couch, occasionally asking my four-legged friends, Phil and Fig, to stop purring or panting or whatever it is they do so that you can all hear me <laughs> rehashing my life clearly and without fuzz. So if that's something you're interested in doing, go to www tenderpodcast.tumblr.com and click the little left-hand sidebar where it says donate. So, what now?
I start to attempt a kitsch New Year's resolution of mine, and that's to perform spoken word poetry in public for the first time ever. I also experience some grief, and grief sometimes causes people to make silly decisions. <laughs>